lot of powerful affirmation that we've made today. Life's hard. God's good. He's my hope and rescue. Take my life. I give all there is of me to you. Those are powerful affirmations. And uh, if those have come from your heart today with uh, sincerity and truth, then you have been blessing and you have been worshiping the Lord. We don't make those kind of affirmations lightly. Amen? Because life is hard. And if you conclude out of the hardness of life that God is good, that is no small affirmation. I just briefly remind us, just, uh, what, three or four years ago, in the Indian Ocean, there was this horrific 9.3 magnitude earthquake that created a number of tsunamis that crashed upon 11 different countries, over 225,000 killed. More recently in our own country, Hurricane Katrina developed out in the Atlantic Ocean, moved across Florida and through the Gulf of Mexico, just leveling the coast of Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. Over 1,800 people killed, over $81 billion in damages. And then just to do a brief survey of some of the horrific serial-type killings that have gone on over the past couple of decades around here. John Gacy from Illinois, who killed some 35 or so young boys and men. Ted Bundy from this area, who was convicted for about 35 murders, but most believe committed about 50. Jeffrey Dahmer, who not only killed 17 young men, but cannibalized many of them. Gary Ridgway, most recently convicted of 48 murders, although that number seems still low to what uh, the potential is that he had, had done. So that's just a brief survey. Natural disasters, gruesome murders and killings. It's a hard world. I mean, we didn't even talk about the stuff that goes on, you know, with economy and the work world and family tension and strife and all that kind of stuff. It's a hard, hard world. And to say, in the face of such hardness, God is good? We don't make such a testimony lightly. It's been that way from the beginning. And we have been starting at the beginning and looking at his story, God's story, and trying to see where our story fits into the meta narrative, the big story of who God is and what God is doing. And today we're in Genesis chapter 4 and we examine the whole horrific scene of Cain killing his brother Abel. How in the world does something like that happen so closely connected? to what had transpired in the Garden of Eden and the perfection that God had brought about in creation. Let's look at the story. We're going to read about 16 uh, verses of it in chapter 4 of Genesis. And then we'll talk a little bit about it. 
Verse 1, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Canaan. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. That's one of the saddest phrases in the Bible. Went out... From the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, you might keep your Bible open so you can make reference to some of the things that we'll be talking about. There are, as you may be aware, a number of ancient Near Eastern texts, ancient writings that depict not just historical things, but theological things. And many of those ancient Near Eastern texts have their own creation narratives, their own flood accounts, and many of the things that you would find some parallel to in the Bible. And so that's given cause for some to talk about, see, the Bible is just one more collection of myths with all the other collections of myths from the ancient days. However, even though there is some similarity between the various accounts in the biblical account, what is most startling and what is most remarkable are the differences. For example, in the other creation narratives, creation came about because of conflicts with the gods, battling one another. And when one was able to prevail over the other and slaughter the other god, then was creating out of the bowels of that other God and doing so by way of making man something of a very savage type of creature. And of course, the biblical account is that God takes nothing 
that's chaotic and orderless, without any conflict with any other kind of God, and simply creates. And he doesn't then breathe life into the savagery of a man, but he does so at the height of creation. In the other stories, man who begins as such a savage kind of evolves and becomes better and better, more sophisticated, something more to behold. But in the biblical account, man begins perfectly. And God says it's good. But because of sin and the fall, he increasingly becomes worse. Just the opposite in so many ways from the ancient, the other ancient narratives. And what we see in chapter 4 today is one more step in that decline of humanity. We saw Adam and Eve last week in chapter 3 rebel against God and take a forbidden fruit and find themselves exiled from the garden. And now we are introduced to their offspring and what had been bad becomes worse. And now we find bad things happening to good people like Abel. Started way back when. So let's observe a couple of things out of the text. First of all, when all this began to transpire with Adam and Eve and the, the birthing of their first child, it was very hope-filled. In fact, you may remember the promise that God made in the midst of a curse on the serpent in chapter 3. God promised that there would be a day when the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And as we mentioned last week, that was kind of a foreshadowing and foretelling of the coming of Christ and what He would do on the cross to be the ultimate undoing and destruction of our enemy, the Satan. So the indicator is in chapter 4, verse 1, when Adam and Eve conceive and they give birth to Cain, Eve declares, I have been able to acquire a man-child. The word also means Lord. And so one could surmise that Eve is thinking that that promise that God had made in the midst of a curse was being fulfilled with her very firstborn. That in fact he was the coming redeemer, Cain. Very hope-filled kind of beginning. In fact, the name Cain makes uh, an inference to be a, a gift of God, something that was acquired from God. But uh, that takes a little turn when heart issues begin to come to the surface. And the way the biblical writer allows us to know about that is to immediately take us to some scenario out of the adulthood lives of Cain and Abel on one occasion when they were worshiping God. And as they were worshiping God, the text tells us that Abel brought his offering, and because he was a tender of animals, he brought... Um, fat portions of the first fruits of his flock. And the, the language implies that it's like the best that he has to offer that he brings to God as an offering in worship. And the text says that Cain brought some of the portions of his harvest. He was a farmer. So you've got a herder and a farmer in the first family, and they both come to worship, and they both bring what they have to, uh, to the Lord to worship him. And already were revealed that there's a 
serious heart issue that has arisen. Now, a lot of people like to pick on the fact that Cain brought produce rather than a blood offering, and that's why God looked with disfavor upon his offering. I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think that's misguided thinking. You look in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament and many other texts that we could point to, and it seems to be the case, not that God was so concerned about whether he had a blood offering or not, or, or uh, whether, whatever kind of offering it is, as much as what is the, the state of the heart that brings this offering to me, that would come uh, before me in my presence. And it would seem that Abel comes, again, look at Hebrews 11 if you want to read a little more into the, the idea of it. He comes with faith. He comes with trust in God. Uh, a trust that says, you know what, I can do without the best portions of my flock. I can do without the prime choice cuts or whatever you want to call it. Because I trust Him. He provides for me. So I bring the best that I have and I, I put it before Him. Where Cain apparently comes without faith not willing to trust God, not thinking that God is a good God, and just bring some of you know what he has, some leftover stuff, some token stuff. And the scriptures say God looks with favor on Abel's offering and disfavor on Cain's offering. Now, you understand that just because you show up for worship doesn't mean that God accepts your worship. Right? You, you get that. He's not impressed that you just show up for worship. He's not impressed that you just bring anything of yourself to Him in worship. The thing that impresses God, the thing that moves God to respond favorably to our worship is that we do so with a whole heart full of faith that says, I trust you no matter what. And I give evidence to that trust by bringing the best of who I am and the best of what I have. God doesn't need grain from farmers. He doesn't need livestock from herders. He doesn't need money from employed people that, that earn you know, cash. He doesn't need any of that. But they become representatives of who we are and how we trust Him and what we are willing to, to bring to Him to show that trust. Totally raises the question for us, doesn't it? How's your worship been? What kind of worshiper are you? What's the state of your heart? Then in the third place, and we highlighted this last week, God asks questions. And when He does, He's not looking for answers for Himself. God's questions are for us. Remember we talked about how He asked uh, Adam, Where are you? Last week. Just to highlight the fact to Adam, Where are you? You're getting far from me. And so he asks a series of questions of Cain, right? And so Cain comes in and he gives this like token offering to God and, and God looks on it with disfavor and Cain is angry. And so God says, Cain, why are you angry? That's a good thing to know. There's a reason why we carry anger with us. And then he uh, says something about, don't you know, if you do right, it'll go well with you. And with that, Cain responds by calling his brother and saying, hey, come out here, I want to show you something. 
And while he gets Abel out, who knows where, backside of nowhere, kills him. Now listen, he didn't have bombs, he didn't have guns, he didn't have things that could allow him to kill someone in a kind of depersonalized way. How did he do this? This is his brother. This is somebody who looks a whole lot like him, talks a whole lot like him, acts a whole lot like him. He looks into Abel's eyes and he sees a whole lot of himself in Abel, right? Did he club him to death? Just beat him until he saw life leave the body of Abel? Did he take Abel's knife that Abel had done sacrifices for God with and slit Abel's throat and watch him bleed like one of Abel's offerings to God? Did he take his hands and put them around Abel's throat and just suffocate him until he saw the light go out of Abel's eyes? What did he do? The point is, friends, his heart had become so sick that he's taking the life of a brother. And so then God asks another question. Where's your brother? What, am I my brother's keeper? You ever get defensive with God? He's on to something if you do. And God says, what have you done? This past week, what have you done? With this one and only life that God has given you, what have you done? It's very important reasons that God asks us these kinds of questions. And then he points out to Cain in the early part of these questions, do you understand, do you realize that sin is crouching at your door looking to master you, to control you? You must master it. What a picturesque word. It's literally a word that speaks of like a lion or a tiger crouching, waiting to pounce, waiting to attack you. Don't you understand that that's the way sin is about your life? It's just crouching, just waiting for an unaware moment in your life to take you down. And here's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. Talking about how sin crouches at the door of your heart and my heart and what that looks like. I think that basically temptation to sin falls in one of two categories. The first is uh, we're tempted not to trust God in order to deal with our pain. Life's hard. Life's painful. Life can hurt us. And when all that happens, we're tempted not to to trust Him as we deal with our pain. And then secondly, and really kind of closely associated with that, is that we get tempted not to trust God when we have pleasures, when we have provisions, when we have plenty. Plenty. Provisions. is just the flip side of pain and suffering. Both invite us not to trust God. 
And of course, we live in a culture that has a lot of plenty, especially compared to the rest of the world. And it is a powerful detriment to people trusting God. But that's another talk for another day. I want to spend more of our time on the first issue of the issue of suffering, the issue of pain, the, the issue of problems. How does that impact us? How does that challenge our trust? How does that challenge the trust of people that are all around us when bad things are happening to good people? Now, uh, in light of the tsunamis that hit those 11 countries in the Indian Ocean, one newspaper writer said, in light of that, if God is God, He's not good. If God is good, He's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. You ever heard that sentiment? You ever had that sentiment? It implies that if there is a God, and if that God is good, then no one should ever have any pain, any problems, any difficulties, any suffering. The, the fact that there is pain, problems, and suffering would indicate there must not be a God or He must not be good. In either case, I won't have anything to do with Him. What do you do with such thinking like that? How do you respond to that? Well, Tim Keller has highlighted that kind of thinking in this way. He said, people, we believe ought not to suffer, ought not be excluded, ought not die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are perfectly natural if you believe there's no God in its survival of the fittest. That's the way it's supposed to happen. On what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice. In other words, if you're an atheist and if you claim there is no God, you've got no grounds to be outraged about injustice. Because it's survival of the fittest. The strong will always overcome the weak. They'll always make it harder for those who are without. That's the way it works in a godless world. You're actually, if you have injustice, a sense of wrongness about all that, you're making a case for God, Keller would say. And I happen to agree. Similarly, C.S. Lewis said, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness? if you hold to natural selection, etc. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there is such a thing as appalling wickedness. So that leaves me. Pain and suffering and my sense of wrongness about that and injustice about that says there must be a God if we think there, there's something unfair about this world. A God who declares what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's unfair, etc. And so to that newspaper 
writer, I would say to his issue, there must not be a God if something like the Indian Ocean catastrophe could take place. I think he's wrong. I think he's actually making the case for the fact there is a God. But then the question is, is that God good? Certainly, by the way of tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and serial murders, etc. like that, if there is a God, He must not be good. But the cross of Christ screams to us, God is good. You go, how's that? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to come, to suffer, to die, to enter the, the realm of human pain and die an atoning death so that we can be redeemed. That's the big story. That's the meta-narrative. Jesus endured and experienced every kind of human brokenness and suffering and pain way beyond those that, uh, other in the world that would have similar types of experiences. So just on the physical level, a lot of people have died horrific physical kinds of torturous deaths. Jesus was incredibly horrifying. He was in a state of shock, no doubt, before he ever got into the beatings. And then the beatings and the scourgings, how they didn't take his life, is just remarkable. Because they took him within an inch of his life. And then hanging upon the cross and the, the suffocation that happens when you can no longer bear the weight of your body hanging upon a cross. What an awful, slow, agonizing, painful way to die. You know, a three-hour suffocation. And then relationally, we're told that God the Father and God the Son are one and inseparable and have an infinite love one for another. And yet somehow, miraculously, mysteriously, when Jesus goes to the cross, in that moment, boom! God the Father and God the Son are separate. And this eternal togetherness, this eternal intimacy, whoo, severed. I mean, this is far worse than any kind of severing that ever happens in a marital relationship. Far worse than any kind of severing that ever happens between a parent and a child or any other kind of relational connectedness that you'd want to, uh, to talk about or discuss. And then on the emotional side of it all, some of us in the room have abandonment issues. How about a cosmic abandonment? Rejection. Isolation. Alienation. The point being that all the suffering and all the pain of Christ, God unquestionably loves the Son. The Father infinitely loves the Son and still allows all of this pain and all this suffering to happen in His life for a purpose, for a plan that's unfolded in the meta-narrative, in the big story. My point in all that is this, friends. We're making the case that even with catastrophes, even with serial murders, even with awful, horrific, painful, suffering things that happen in our lives, A, there is a God, and B, He is good. C, all these things happen because purpose, plan, redemption. 
suffering is not conclusive. That He doesn't love us. You see, the hidden premise is that if suffering is apparently pointless to me, then it must be pointless. That's the hidden premise to that whole kind of thinking. What the Scriptures tell us, what the big story tells us, is that what often appeared to be pointless to people had huge eternal purposes and plans behind them. Right? You know the stories. Let me just highlight a couple of them. At the end of the book we're in right now, Genesis, chapters 37 through 47, we're told the story of Joseph. I mean, I'd highly encourage you, if you haven't had a fresh read of that lately, to do that this week. It'll give you a great context and, and, and revelation about the purposes to suffering. But here's a guy who is betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, mistreated at every point along the way, uh, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. You're looking at an ancient depiction of him lying in a dungeon with a uh, baker and a butcher from the Pharaoh's uh, court. He is a son of Jacob, who is a son of Isaac, who is a son of Abraham. These are the promised people through whom God's going to bring the redemption where the, the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. But all that is threatened now because Joseph is in a dungeon and Jacob's family is about to perish because of famine. An unbelievably far-reaching kind of famine. And so God turns the tables, turns it all upside down, uh, elevates Joseph out of the dungeon, makes him the second most powerful man in the world, and causes him to be the saving factor for Jacob's extended family to be able to come to Egypt and to be able to uh, be rescued from a famine so that the redemptive plan is still in place and can still happen. Now here's what I want you to note. As you get to the end of the story in chapter 50 of Genesis, the brothers of Joseph are scared and frightened because they just know as awful as they have been to Joseph, Joseph must be planning vengeance. He must be planning to kill them. And so in verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, relax. Don't worry about it. You meant it. What you did to me, all the horrific things you inflicted on me, all the suffering, all the pain, all the, the evil things that have transpired through these years, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. That's a huge theological statement. God meant it. God didn't just step into a mess and go, okay, shh, how am I going to clean this one up? He meant it. He caused it. He was behind it. He authored it. Do you get what I'm saying? Joseph is looking at the face of all this horrific stuff that's gone on in his life and goes, you know what? God caused every bit of this to happen in my life. And it's good. That's one of the reasons Joseph is one of my heroes. 
quickly we'll look at Job. And you know his story? He is incredibly prosperous. He's not in a dungeon. He's not in pain and suffering. He is prosperous. He's got more cattle. He's got more livestock. He's got more possessions and more goods than any man alive on the planet in his day. And plus, he's got ten children. The perfect number. Seven boys, three girls. They're all married. They all have children. He's got all these grandchildren. They get together and party all the time. They get together and have cookouts. They get together and, and enjoy you know, the various holidays and experiences together all the time. Life is good. And what Job doesn't know is that in the heavenly realm, in the heavenly council, the serpent, the devil, the Satan is doing what he does and he's accusing people on earth. And he tells God, you know what, nobody really serves you, nobody really loves you, nobody really worships you uh, for who you are for, with a full heart bent towards you. And, and God says, no, no, I could, I could point to you to several people, but you know the one I'm going to point to. Right there, that guy right there, Job. No. You see, God, you've blessed him so much. He has so much prosperity. You take away all that prosperity, he won't follow you. He won't trust you. He won't worship you. And God says, yes, he will, and I'll prove it to you. And he call, God calls for a test on Job's life to prove to Satan and to all the unseen spirit world that there's a man on earth that loves him and honors him and worships him just for who God is. Job doesn't know all that's transpiring. And so all of a sudden there are two horrific kind of cataclysmic things that take place in Job's life. There's like this lightning storm that happens and it consumes you know, all this livestock and all these possessions of his. Then there's like this tornado that comes in and blows the house apart. There are these enemy nations. Uh, one comes in and kills all these people. Another comes in and kills all these people. And, and, and just like that, Job is without all of his family and loved ones except his wife. And without all of his possessions. Just like that, he's lost it all. And he says... The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, that is just not pious platitude. When you're in that state, when you have had that kind of loss, a platitude cannot fly out of your mouth. That's right out of the heart. And God points that out to Satan and says, Yeah, but you haven't done anything to his body. You did all this outside of him. He didn't do anything to his body. Inflict his body. And God said, go at it. Don't kill him. Go at it. And these horrific, sickly, sore type things come upon his body. He is in such agony. He actually breaks up pottery and takes broken pottery pieces and lances these boils. And dirt gets in them and clogs them up and worms get in them. I mean, it's the nastiest, most painful, disgusting thing that you can think of. I mean, it's just killing his wife so much. She says, Job, just curse God and kill yourself and get it over with. And Job won't do it. He says God's good. But he also says that God did it. And the Bible tells us, in all that Job said, and all that Job did, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. He said, God, 
inflicted all this on me. And the Bible says, you're not wrong. You're not sinning when you say that. You're right. I know you're running that through your grid right now of your stuff. Or the stuff of someone you know, you love, you care about them. How does all that make sense? What are we supposed to do with all that? Life is hard. But God is good. You see, the most important thing in life is not our deliverance from pain. And the most important thing in life is not the enjoyment of pleasure. Now, there's this kind of hard, fallen wiring within us that says, I've got to do whatever's necessary to get rid of the pain. I've got to do whatever's necessary to add to the pleasure and the provisions and, and the plenty. But Jesus kind of settled that for us out in the wilderness when He told the enemy, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by what pain he's avoided and by what pleasure he's acquired. Man lives by the Word of God. Faith. Not blind. Revelatory. You've seen that goodness of God. Been embraced by it and you embrace it back. Kind of faith. You see, the most important thing is the person of God. That's the most important thing. And close to that is the glory of God. And so if we had wanted to take the time today, I could have given you about 50 verses, 50 references across the Scriptures that would talk about every single thing that God does is for His glory. And if He gives you plenty, it's for His glory. If, if there are pain and difficulties that come your way, it's for His glory. And you go, what kind of egomaniac is he? He's not. He just knows that the most important thing for you is for you to be able to know Him. That's the most important thing for you, is for you to be able to know Him. How in the world would you ever be drawn toward Him? How in the world would your heart ever be awakened and, and quickened alive toward Him except for the fact that His glory draws you to Him? That's why... God does everything for His glory so that His glory awakens your heart and draws your heart to Him because the most important thing for you is to have Him. You were made for Him. You are fit for Him. You are unfit without Him. He knows that. The best gift He can give you is not deliverance from pain or a variety of pleasures and provisions. The best thing He can give you is Him. That's why He says in Hebrews 11.6, you must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And for those who seek Him, what's He reward them with? Himself. Because that's the greatest treasure. That's the greatest thing you can have in life. God reveals this truth to a watching world through the lives of faithful believers. You go, I'm barely getting this right now, Scott. How will my unbelieving friend ever get it? 
God's plan is that they get it through you by watching your life, by watching you get it. That's His plan. So that if you're in a season of plenty, you're still trusting Him first, foremost, and above everything else. And if you're in a season of pain or problems or suffering, that you still honor, exalt, worship Him first and foremost. When you've got plenty, they're going, you know what? There must be something to that God if she still goes hard after God when she's got everything she needs. And if you're in a time of pain and problems, you know, they're going, there must be something to that God if when life is so bad and so hard, they still think God's good. Either way, the story of God is being told through you when you trust Him first and foremost and declare that He's good no matter what circumstances are all around you. So, recently I learned of another African missionary story. Let me just close with this. It's, it's not our world, it's not our culture, it's not something that you'd run into down the street, but it, it illustrates to me what we're talking about. A Maasai warrior literally was walking down a dusty road and he encountered a Christian. And as they engaged life with one another a little bit, the Christian shared with him the gospel. And the Spirit came upon him and quickened his heart and he believed and he became a Christian. Right then and there on a dirty, dusty road in Africa. And it so gripped his heart and it so filled him with hope, not only for himself but for those back in his village, he immediately made tracks for his village so that he could go and share with everyone there about Jesus Christ, this Son of God who died for our sins and gives us eternal life. He goes back to his village and he begins to go uh, around and begin to declare the gospel of Jesus. And for whatever reason, inexplicably, it infuriated and enraged the tribe's people. And so the men came out and finally subdued him. And the women came with this like barbed wire whips. And they just beat him until they thought he was dead. Whipped him with these barbed wire whips. And, and then took him to the outskirts of town to die. After some kind of comatose time, he arouses enough that he is able to crawl away to this little oasis thing, this little water hole. And there he drifts in and out of consciousness for days. He's finally able to refresh himself and he kind of gets some of his strength, some of his health back. And he's going, you know what? I must have messed that story up. There's no way people would have responded to this good news the way that they did. And so before he's even really healthy and well again, he goes back to the village to try to tell them the story again because he thinks he screwed it up. And they do the same thing all over again. The guys beat him and then restrain him. The women come out and start whipping him with this barbed wire kind of stuff. Again, he's within an inch of his life. They take him outside of the city to die. And he's able to hang on and resuscitate. And after a few days, he cannot believe when his senses come back around. There's something wrong in how I'm doing this. Because this is good news. And for a third time, he goes back to the village to tell them the gospel again. And he doesn't even get a word out this time. They see him. They start just pounding on him and the women start whipping him and as he's drifting in and out of consciousness and about to die suddenly 
they stop trying to kill him and they start trying to care for him and in and out of consciousness he keeps opening his eyes and he's seeing these women standing over him and now they're weeping and their tears are falling on him and they're crying and after a few days of being in kind of a comatose state he comes to and he's in someone's bed and they've been tending to his wounds and trying to take care of him and, and revive his life and, and, and he discovers the entire village has come to Christ because of his willingness to suffer in the name of Jesus. There was something about his suffering that broke their hearts and they could see the glory of God and they turned to him. We're not tribal, warrior, dirt, dirt road walking kinds of people. It's not our story. What is your story? Where are you in the big story? Time of prosperity? Time of pain? What are you doing about it? How are you handling it? Is the embrace of God on you, the presence of God near you? Or is there a, a cane kind of thing where the presence of God is being removed from you? It may just be that in these minutes you come to understand something more of what's up with suffering, with pain, with problems. And so maybe you're at a place where you say, you know what, I trust God. I trust Him more and even better in this moment, either with my own suffering or with someone else's. I've been watching this happen. And I, I know God's at work about this. And maybe you'd want to respond to God today by just affirming and acknowledging again, you're good. Everything around me is screaming you're not, but I know, I believe, you're good. Or maybe you see and you have some others around you that are in a very hard time in a very hard way, and you go, you know what? I will let God use me to be a blessing in their life. However God wants to bless them. It may not be pain relief. It may just be being with them in the pain. I don't know what it would be. But you would say, God, I'll allow you to use me in whatever way you want to use me in the pain, the suffering, the problems of this person. Now, on the back of your connection card, I've given you these next steps. And there I've got a little blank. I'd encourage you to put in the blank some initials or some kind of indicator about who that person is God's put on your heart to whom you'd be responsive or maybe in the third place you go you know what I just I have to 